Uh, welcome to the Calgary Sessions. I'm your host, Jeff Humphreys. This is episode number 22. Uh, today's guest, this is going to be a fun conversation because um, he's a, uh, I got introduced to him from a mutual friend, uh, Kurt from BowCycle. So, and this guest story really resonated with me right out of the gate. So this will be a really cool conversation. Um, I'll let him introduce himself and uh, yeah, just kind of explain kind of a little yeah. bit of who you are out of the gate. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for introducing me. Uh, and uh, introduced me to this wicked studio you got here. This is uh, really nice. I've been uh, watching you and listening to you, and um, I was really pleased when you reached out to me. So, cool. was, like I was telling you earlier, it was a long bike ride to get here, one point three <laughs> kilometers, but I made it. I had a tailwind. So, my name's uh, my name's Laval Saint Germain. I'm uh, uh, born in Al- in northern Alberta, but have been in Calgary since 1990. So, I'm a uh, I'm a dad. Um, I'm an adventurer. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll probably talk about some of that stuff. And then my real job is I'm an airline captain here in Calgary for uh, an airline called Canadian North. So I fly Boeing 737s out of uh, Calgary, Edmonton, Ottawa, Nunavut, all over the all over North America. Cool. Um, and you know, obviously the the adventurer thing, as you just kind of slid in there, is is the obviously the 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 reason why I'm here. Well, the big the big interest <laughs> point for me because it's. Um, you know, it's an adventure athlete, you know, it's obviously, that's part of my shtick is artists, entrepreneurs and athletes. And Mm -hmm. your, uh, your adventuring background is mind altering to me. So I would, I would love for you to go back, um, to whether it's childhood, you know, growing up and I'd love Mm -hmm. to just hear, you know, moments in your life or or a moment in your life, you can go back to and be like, this is kind of where things started. This Mm -hmm. is, I was interested in certain things at a young age, you know, my, my parents kind of were pushing me to go here. So I'd love to, I'd love for you to just go back to your early, just early memories. Where it started. And then, yeah. You know, it's, it's, that's a good question. I've, I've been asked this a lot, Jeff, and I've been thinking about this because I've got, um, I've got a, a son who just turned 20, a daughter who's now 26. And, uh, uh, we've also lost a son, uh, several years ago, but, you think about the moments in, in a in a young person's life that adjust their trajectory trajectory, and I and I always think about it like a pinball machine. So we're that silver ball rolling down the the pinball table, and then there are the paddles that we hit. And if a paddle misses, then it goes into the hole, or it hits another paddle, or it goes somewhere else on the board. And and life is a lot like that, where there are certain things, certain paddles, certain. Um, changes in trajectory that can really change your entire trajectory of, of your life. And um, I think for me, it was probably the fact that um, when I look back on it now, um, I grew up in a small town, uh, Mournville, which is a farming community north of Edmonton. And uh, my mom was uh, from a farm outside of that uh, that little town. My dad was a, a, a townie, so he's he was from the town of Mournville. Uh, kind of an interesting mix. It was largely a French-Canadian town with German farmers around it. So my dad's French-Canadian, my mom's German-Canadian. But did, did they, were they born and raised there? Did they? Yeah, they are born and raised there. Okay. Both, both of them, though, their first language was that. So my dad's first language was French, mm-hmm. even though he was born in Alberta, and his dad was born in Alberta. <clears throat> and my mom's first language was German, even though she was born in Alberta and her parents were born in Alberta. So... Hmm. And I think that was fairly common back then because you're living in isolated communities. Um, it was a it was a very francophone area with these German farmers, um, and uh, at that time the the mother tongue was spoken in your in your house. Hmm. So um, yeah, a, li- a little bit of an unusual mix, not for we're from the part of the world that I'm from though. And uh, my dad was uh, big time into the outdoors. He was a, a hunter, 
a fisherman. He even guided hunters for a while when I was a, a small boy. So I was always being exposed to the outdoors, um, either uh, big game hunting with my dad, small game hunting with my dad, or canoeing. Lots of canoeing we did as a family. I mean, mm -hmm. we, were, we were not a wealthy family when I was a young boy. And, you know, a big adventure for us would be to canoe down the Pemina River and the Athabasca River in uh, northern Alberta. And that combined with the love of reading, my dad was a was huge uh, um, proponent of reading. So even as a young, young boy, like I'm talking eight, nine years old, I was reading some pretty um, some pretty solid books from yep. Moby Dick to um, to uh, the Hardy Boys mm -hmm. to Tarzan, mm -hmm. uh, etc. And and then we had a National Geographic uh, uh, subscription, which I'm sure a lot of people had. And and then that combination of the outdoors and I think this uh, this wanderlust that my dad instilled in me um, made me sort of think beyond the confines of Morningville, Alberta, the Pemina and the Athabasca and and uh, and seeing these places that my dad were telling me stories about or that I was reading about in National Geographic. So, you know, that's where that love of the uh, outdoors came from. It was, was he, <clears throat> sorry, was he was he. Was he actually telling you these things of what to be aware of and what to focus on and like how to value these things? Or was he just showing you and, and letting you experience things yeah, and, you, and you're coming to your own conclusions? Yeah, both. He, was, he, was, he wasn't um, directing me in the sense that it was instructional, but he was sharing stories of stuff that's happened to him while out in the bush hunting, for example, or canoeing. Or, and I was just enthralled with that. Uh, most of it, though, when I look back on it, was sounded like poor planning, a lot of calamities, and you know, busted <laughs> canoes, and stuck four by fours, and people shooting bolts off the bottom of a tracked vehicle with a rifle because they didn't have a wrench, and like uh, crazy it. stuff like that. <laughs> but um, um, he would also tell me about sort of the great explorers, and I was really enthralled with uh, maybe it's because of my French Canadian background, but the voyageurs. You know, if you think about what they did, they would leave Montreal, canoe across Canada, end up in Fort Chip in northern Alberta, spend the winter, and then canoe back again. And it was not a big deal. I mean, you do that now, you have your own YouTube channel, you'd be, you, you know, a, a world-class adventurer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there's a Scottish adventurer named Ray, uh, John Ray, who discovered, not discovered, but was one of the first Europeans that was that was in the uh, the eastern Arctic on the west shore of uh, Hudson's Bay. He did a lot of stuff up there. And, you know, he's got a journal entry, uh, walked 700 miles in my snowshoes, shot one moose, that's it. I mean, that's a huge adventure mm -hmm. nowadays. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was his whole journal entry, walked 700 miles, shot Just one moose. Day. And that was his, probably took him a month, but it was... <laughs> He was walking between uh, forts. But so I, I really was enthralled with the, the, the stories of the Canadian explorers, uh, with um, the Yukon, the Arctic in general, and just wilderness. And uh, my dad would tell me these stories, and I would just dream about it. Hmm. And then what really set the hook for me is I can still remember we were canoeing on the Athabasca River. I was just a little guy. I, was, I don't know how old I was, seven or eight, uh, I'm guessing. And <clears throat> the forest lining the river was off to my left. And I said to my dad, I said, how far into that bush would I go before I saw anybody again? He said, I don't know, 800 miles? And I could just, I could not fathom that size of a wilderness. So I just remember thinking about going into that forest and wondering what was behind those trees and what kind of adventures I'd have, and, and it's never left me, so. And so when you're, when you're growing up, obviously it's kind of like, it sounds like an active mm -hmm. childhood, being mm -hmm. outdoors, and, and then you're getting exposed to books. Was education a part of your um, early days, like, or was it? Yeah, yeah. My dad was the the. It's interesting. My dad was the cerebral one, the one that was 
uh, pushing uh, education and books. Uh, his dad was a lawyer. He'd studied to become a lawyer. And then during the real estate boom in the uh, late 1970s in Alberta, he dropped out of law school and became a, a land developer, a real estate guy. My mom was um, the one who was into sports. So mm. even though my dad played sports in, in high school when he was in university as well, but my mom was, she played, I remember going to my, watch my mom play volleyball. She raced canoes. She uh, played slow pitch. And she was always... Uh, healthy bo uh, healthy body healthy mind mm -hmm. she'd always tell us where mm -hmm. my dad was sort of the opposite he was more into the into the the, the reading and the education stuff so i yeah. think it turned out to be a good mix because i was an avid reader and um and i think that really opened up my horizons from this from you know a you know a fairly remote small town type uh, way of thinking to something broader so yeah so when you're did you play traditional sports yeah like yeah I played hockey. You're the athletic person, so you kind of yeah. Played hockey, played rugby, um, soccer, got into archery. Uh, we moved when I was 11 from the Mournville area, or Mournville, the town of Mournville, north of Edmonton, to uh, a bedroom community uh, east of Edmonton called Sherwood Park. Oh, yeah. And so I ended up. Um, we lived lived on an acreage outside of Sherwood Park as well. So. Um, when we moved at age 11, so I was in grade five, uh, we also skied a lot. Um, that was one of our biggest sports is skiing. But age 11, I, um, I quit hockey and really got into the outdoor stuff. So really into archery. I competed in, in archery. It's called heavy tackle archery. So you're shooting like a hunting bow at a target, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. I worked at an archery lane. I taught people how to, how to shoot bows. And, and then I was also a, an avid skier. And that turned into... When I was uh, 17 or so, <clears throat> I was skiing at Sunshine, and this this incredible uh, uh, skier was coming down the hill, and he was telemark skiing, and I had never seen telemark skiing. He had a pink bandana on. He was a French Canadian guy, all tanned up, and so I was talking to him in the line, and I just right there at 17, I said. I'm going to be this guy. I'm going to ski like that. So I found out that I could rent Telemark skis, the very primitive Telemark skis mm -hmm. back then from the uh, University of Alberta Outdoor <laughs> Center. I can't and, imagine. And that set me off. <laughs> well, they were great because they wouldn't release. You had leather boots. And when you wiped out, you could just sort of get yourself tied up in a knot of leather and skis and bamboo and whatever. And yeah, and I taught myself at a tele ski and then that turned into ski touring and and that set me off. That was it. That was like the, <clears throat> yeah, once I think, you started doing that, you, yeah. and you started accessing different places that you yeah, couldn't get exactly. to before. Yeah, yeah. And that, that guy on those, well, it's interesting. It was that. I he's a French Canadian guy, though. <clears throat> yeah, of course. Of, of all I mean, the, of course. <laughs> um, and then uh, what else? You know, another thing that really set it off, when, uh, my, my dad had a, a, a Swiss uh, business partner. So we didn't have the money to do this, but somehow my parents would put together enough money to send my sister and I, when I was 13 and she was 14, we're only 13 months apart, we went to uh, Switzerland for three weeks of skiing, staying with these people. Downhill, traditional skiing? Downhill, okay. yeah. And then again, when I was 15, we did it again. So I got to hand it to my parents because we definitely didn't have the means to do that. But, you know, they scraped together the funds to get us on a flight to uh, Europe, and then these people just took over from there, and, and we um, we skied with them for three weeks. And this guy would would ski tour, and uh, he was much older. Like he's he's passed away now. He lived into his early 80s, but uh, his name was Gert Kroll. And after we'd be skiing at 13, we'd sit in his his living room. He's a very wealthy businessman from Switzerland. Living room was was lined with 
what we call a European mount. So it's just the skull and the antlers of red deer that he'd shot. He had a hunting territory in the in uh, Bavaria in Germany. So he hunted wild boar and red deer and roebuck. And it's just a, just your sort of traditional mm-hmm. green clad, like a uh, German hunter type guy. He was actually German, but he had settled in, he'd, he'd emigrated to uh, Switzerland. So he would show me these old, I guess it'd be a nine millimeter. Uh, what, is that what that would be? The uh, the film version back oh, then? Yeah, yeah. Eight millimeter, nine millimeter? Like that. Yeah. yeah okay. And Real. he'd show me black and white uh, uh, movies of them ski touring in the Alps, hut to hut. And I just went, oh my God, I got to do this. And so from age 13, I, I was always thinking about ski touring. They weren't telemark skiing. They would, they would, they would do what, uh, what we'd call now alpine ski touring. So their heel would be, would be released so they could yep. walk uphill. And they actually used real goat skins and ski, um, seal skins on the bottom of their skis hmm. back then, back in, in the, in the, I guess these would have been in the sixties when he was showing me these videos from, or actually the fifties cause they were black and white. And I just thought that was an amazing way to reach some pretty cool um, territory. Just, and, and are you thinking, like, even when you're on the boat cruising by that, you're like, what's, what's back there? Oh, yeah. Just, oh, is yeah. That, that's yeah. what kind of gets you going? Yeah. What, that first what, row of trees there? was, to me, uh, it, was like, it was like when they, when they, when you're about to watch a movie and then they open the curtains, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is behind those mm-hmm. curtains? And I just wanted to see what was back there. I knew there's gonna be adventure no matter what. I mean, yep. black flies and muskeg and yep. mud and, and, but you know, I, I was, I'd see moose, I'd see elk, I'd see bear, whatever it was. And that's what I, and just to, even to this day to be out somewhere remote, uh, whether I'm in, in Tibet, um, and I see Himalayan blue sheep or I see Tibetan gazelles, um, that just to me just just puts uh, like an exclamation mark on my experience to to be out doing what I do, which I'm sort of known as a as an outdoor athlete who who's an endurance athlete. But people don't really realize that if I'm out running and I come upon an animal, to me it's just it's fantastic to mm-hmm. see something like that. Mm-hmm. I was just going around the reservoir the other night, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it was closed because of bear activity. Yeah, on the top there. Yeah, so yeah. I accidentally went underneath the barricade. Oh, you, you're that guy. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, just from. People not being there for probably two days because yep. they've been closed while they're trying to, mm-hmm. sh- to get the, the, the scare the bear out of there with their cubs. You know, there was a white-tailed buck on the path. There was a bull moose on the puck or on no the way. path. He was only a meter and a half in front of me trotting. Like down by the, before you get to the beaver dam? Like on the flats there? Yeah, exactly. That, okay. I, was, I was heading, uh, so that would be uh, uh, northeast on the flats before you go over the little blue bridge mm-hmm. to take you up to yep. Lakeview. Yep. So yeah, he was right there. No way. So, so anyway, so... Yeah, so to, to make a long story short, it was the introduction to, to, the, to the wilderness. These grainy uh, movies that were shown to me in Switzerland that got me into ski touring, and ski touring just turned into ski mountaineering, and then all of a sudden I became an airline pilot and had the ability to travel all over the world for next, all over the world for next to nothing because we get passes in airlines all over the world. Yep. And in my early 20s, you know, I was off in Honduras with a buddy scuba diving, even though I still haven't been certified. And... Uh, <laughs> And then uh, shortly after that, I was next thing I know, we're you know we're at the bottom of the highest uh, mountain in Bolivia, about to climb that. So, are you, you know, when you decide that you know the outdoors is going to be your thing, mm-hmm. are you, are you surrounding yourself with like-minded people? Like, are you finding people that you can hang with? Or is it's this it's also difficult, like- you know. That, that's an interesting thing. I I spend so much of my time doing solo stuff. It's hard to find people. Um, that want to do this stuff or have the ability to do it, yeah. either that or have the 
uh, financial means to do it. Yeah. And, and because of the fact that I can travel for next to nothing, yeah. right? So that, yeah. you know, for me to, to fly to Europe is going to cost me 150 bucks, mm -hmm. right? Where somebody else might cost them $800 yeah. or more. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's difficult. I mean, I do like doing solo stuff. You also have to find partners that are, you know, that can do this type yeah. of stuff. And, and you know, I, I have had partners in the past who've been like that, like the guy that I was in Bolivia with. And then he had, uh, you know, he got married, had kids. He lives in Vancouver now and I'm in Calgary. And mm -hmm. it's just, you know, life can get in the way of those, um, of those trips. And then I think for me, they've continued on chronically because I, I, have, a, I have a partner in my wife who, who I'm not going to say she either allows me or disallows me. She actually pushes me to do this stuff, right? She knows this is what I do. And she's always known that from the day I met her. Mm -hmm. So I think I met her and a couple of days later, I was leaving to go uh, to climb Kilimanjaro. So she's always been aware of this. Mm -hmm. And um, and and that's really helped. Whereas, you know, uh, rightly or wrongly, some some spouses, whether male or female, don't want their, their, um, their spouse to, to, to play in this extreme sports or this dangerous sports thing that, yep. that, that I do. So, so before you like, <clears throat> you know, I'm going to say went like wild to the adventures that you're on when you're kind of growing up and just getting into it, yep. is it still like, are you just, are you picking her in spots in Alberta that you're trying to get yeah. deeper, further, yeah. just walk like, to traverse. Um, even as a little boy, my, my mom would talk about going, um, having to do something for an entire day. And I'd say, well, drop me off at this woodlot, like a, a chunk of forest near, Sherwood Park with my bow and arrow and pick me up at the end of the day. And I'd be in there all day till dark and I'd be walking around hunting and hunting rabbits, hunting grouse, hunting squirrels. And when I got cold, because it was wintertime, I'd start a little fire. Mm. And, you know, nowadays, can you imagine a parent doing no. that? No, I mean, they give happen. you an iPad and they'd sit you in the house and say, I'll be back in two hours, but don't go anywhere. Totally. And I, I'm so, I am so grateful that I grew up at that time when we weren't babysat with electronics, where our whole life wasn't in, our, in a iPhone or an iPad. And, mm. and I think that gave me a lot of uh, independence, but it also gave me a lot of, um, of um, competence in the outdoors where, yeah, I'm never, when I go on these, when I do these expeditions, I kind of harken back to that stuff subconsciously, but you know, most of the time I know I'm going to figure it out. So yeah, it, it, it's, you know, Nobody grows up like that anymore. I know, and it's really sad. Yeah. I, and I just, you know, I, is it because there's just not, is the world gotten to a point now where it's just too digital or there's just, you just, the spaces, there's so much, there's people in all these spaces, like there's no free spaces to go to anymore or is it, it's a combination? No, of there everything. are, there are free spaces. I mean, uh, the reason I know that is go to K country this summer. Yeah. Like you go to Elbow Falls to go run up, um, Prairie Mountain, and then you on a on a Saturday in the summertime in the mid 1990s, there'd be three cars there. Now you go there on a Saturday in 2021, and there'll be 700 cars there. No, mm -hmm. no exaggeration. Mm -hmm. So people are getting out in the outdoors, but um, I, I I still haven't decided how dangerous uh, these devices are. I mean, I'm on them. I'm on Instagram. Yeah. I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and they are designed intentionally to keep us hooked on them. For sure. Where you walk out of a room and it's like, oh, you, you know, where, mm -hmm. where do I put my phone? Mm -hmm. Not your keys, your phone. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, so you know, that, that's an issue. So I'm really happy that, uh, that I grew up at that time when, when your parents didn't know where you were. Yeah. But they also knew that you'd figure it out, right? Where I don't think we give kids enough credit that way. And I've tried to do that with my kids. I've tried to, 
to really do that. So, and yeah. do, do they? Do they, Do you think? Do you feel like they look at the world a little bit different than? Oh yeah, their peers. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting when you've got young kids. Now that my kids are growing up, is that uh, they don't know what they don't know. So if you, you know, sort of one of the iconic trips I did with my kids. I mean, they've been to the, they've been to the Amazonian rainforest in, in Southern Guyana. They've been, you know, in dugout canoes. They've, they've, um, they've had every vaccine and, and <laughs> tropical drug shot known to man and malaria meds. So all you anti-vaxxers out there, look at my kids, they're fine. Um, side note. Yeah. Side note. And, uh, you know, my, my two oldest, um, Richard and Andrea, when they were 11, when Andrea was 11 and he was 13, Richard, we rode our bikes from um, Dawson City, Yukon, all the way to Nuvik on the Jemster Highway. So how, how far is that? It's uh, 800K of gravel. And they're yeah. 11 and... They were 11 and 13 then, yeah. The youngest people still that have ever done it. But it was funny because we're riding these these mountain bikes that that Kurt Abo Cycle and Johnny Fransky set us up with, uh, or the, the two kids. I rode that bike you saw me on today. I had uh, gravel tires on it before there's such a thing as gravel. That's a cyclocross bike. I pulled a Beast of Burden trailer. They had panties on their bikes. And, uh, yeah, they did, they averaged 88K a day. Their longest day was 133K on gravel. And uh, they just did it because they didn't know any better. And <clears throat> which, which is, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I ride my bike. Mm-hmm. To do that as a grown person, mm. that's a daunting task. That's a, that's yeah. a, that is a commitment to decide you're going to do that. Do yeah, you, it is. Do you, do you just look at the kids and you know yourself like, well, let's just go do this. What, what can go wrong? Or, or I got this or like, what do you think? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've got this. I mean, I'm really well, well prepared, obviously, especially when you're traveling with kids. I mean, this is grizzly country and it's very remote and you know, you're going to have lots of mechanicals and, um, but I had enough time. I didn't have to make it in a certain time. I think we had like a three or a four day cushion before we had to fly back. Yep. And it was just one of the most wonderful things I've ever done. Yeah, they had tears, and we had some long hills, right, to tow Richard. I had to have Richard tied to my bike and the beast of burden to get him up the hill. And, and uh, you know, there's one point there where there's about 130K where, believe it or not, you can't get any water because you're on a high plateau, um, which is hard to believe when you're thinking about the boreal forest in Canada, but there's just no water. So, you know, I had to carry enough water for three days, mm-hmm. cooking, cycling, mm-hmm. three people. So it was... It was an amazing trip, and uh, it really showed those two kids that they were capable of anything. And as they grew up, uh, Richard, whenever he got into hard times in life, what, what he'd think about the Dempster, he said, and that if he can do that, he can do anything. It, it is insane. It, th- that, that trip, is, it's insane that, that you guys actually did that, period. Like, yeah, it's I, don't just, know. Wait, I don't know. Okay, yeah. it's you, and, you're cre- and this is the other thing I want to get into <clears throat> with you, is your creativity. The creativity to come up with these ide- ideas mm. to actually do it. Which That's is- one of my. You're, you like art, obviously, and one of the you like having artists on this, on this podcast. Yeah. And, and I think it's a real art to dream up some of these trips. Well, that's what it yeah. is, though. It's yeah. a, like to because this isn't this isn't this isn't a blueprint that's out there that you're no. following. This is you're looking for opportunities or adventures and yeah, and you can find them in some pretty cool areas. Like the last trip I did, and I've been thinking about this because I'm doing a um, speaking gig in Boston at the end of the month and. I'm just putting together some slides and and I'm trying to figure out exactly what I'm going to talk about something different and I, and I just as the as the world was about to shut down I had just come back from Somalia I was in Somalia and uh, not a recommended place to travel obviously uh, you can't even travel there as a solo person you have to have armed guards with you and soldiers and it, it's strange but 
I wanted to to uh, hike slash climb to the top of the highest mountain in Somalia, which I found. I did my research on it, and I ended up in Somalia, standing on top of this mountain. And how? Again, just a creative idea. Yeah. You're just literally looking at a map. Yeah. Being like, I haven't been here. I wonder what's there. How am I going to get there? Dig into it. Figure yeah. out what's there. And what a magical place. Like you think about Somalia, you think about just dry desert. You yeah. think about Black Hawk Down and you think about poverty and you think about everybody carrying a Kalashnikov. But then you start to look into it deeper and deeper and you cut through this stuff and you realize that, well, Somalia is one country, but there's a breakout part of Somalia called Somaliland and it's quite a bit safer than Somalia. It's not recognized by anybody, but they still they still treat it like a separate autonomous region, mm-hmm. the, the Somalilanders. So looking at it initially at first blush, <clears throat> this, was a, this was what is interesting about these international type uh, uh, adventures that I do is that you get to know a place like nobody else would know it because you wouldn't, yeah. people know Somalia for the reasons I just stated, yeah. pirates, Mogadishu, yeah. um, and Black Hawk Down. But when you really dig into it and you see that there's nuances, both to the people and to the, the danger levels and to the geography and the topography. And, um, and I think by being on the ground and getting into these remote areas, you can really see a place. And for me to, to sit there with a map and, and when I identify something that I want to do, I'm like, holy shit, the highest mountain in Somalia. I mean, how many people have been there? This is crazy. And and it, I, I didn't go there because it's a, a difficult. I got to the top, and it's a it's a forest. You can't. You could be standing in a in Edworthy Park in a grove of trees. You can't tell where you are. Yeah. But you're at like you know you got your GPS. And you're like, well, this is it. This is the high. Like this sucks. You know. Remember the penguins in Madagascar? Yeah. Got, yeah. And uh, but it was the. It's once again. It's a cliche, but it was the journey to get there. Which Always? is amazing. Is that, is that your? <clears throat> yeah. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's the journey, and the people you meet, and the. Yeah. And I mean, sure, you've got, I've had lots of difficult times. I got attacked there. I got chased there. I got, I got held in a, in a military fort uh, because I, I tried to ride my bike to this mountain. You can't travel solo. I had hyenas around me. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, you know, I was, I, I drank, I, I drank milk from a camel that was like into the cup right out of the teat and like just Crazy. amazing stuff like that that I'll never be able to do here. And then I also do that. And now anytime I see someone from Somalia, if you can identify them as a, as a Somalian, you say thank you to them in, uh, in Somalian. They're just mm-hmm. blown away. Mm-hmm. Or if I've been in Iraq mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm, I had a fueler feeling at my airplane today in Edmonton. And I said to him, I said, uh, where are you from? I, I hear an accent. And he goes, oh, I'm from Iraq. I said, oh, we're in Iraq. He said, Kurdistan. I said, oh, I've climbed the highest mountain in Iraq. And I was in Erbil. And we... You know, he's just blown away because mm-hmm. you can now mm-hmm. exchange these mm-hmm. stories and, and instead of looking at people as a group and looking at them as Arabs or Muslims or, or Russians, you really realize that the world's made up of individuals, right? Mm-hmm. And we just put them in categories. And I think that's so important about, about the travels that I do. It's not just about busting my ass out there and doing something mm-hmm. really hard. It's, there's a whole um, or there's a whole array of other experiences that I that I really cherish. So, and do you you know if you if you were to bucket you know the reasons why you do it mm-hmm. you know the the physical mm-hmm. the physical task the being the being in you know all in in a community mm-hmm. understanding who they are and, and their lives mm-hmm. like is it are they is everything equal is it does it all yeah, play into that's the a big really good picture? question it's a really good question. Because you haven't, and you know, this is probably you being 
um, maybe humble and not wanting to just talk about like details of these trips and all, cause that's, you know, you talk about it over and over Yeah, this community piece and talking about the experiences is, a, is obviously a big part of this conversation. So yeah. I'm wondering how it all fits into the mix of why. Well, it depends on the trip. I mean, the, uh, the, the Somali trip I just refer- referenced was to go there, cycle to Shimbutas on my gravel bike, uh, walk to the top of this peak, uh, by myself. Um, I knew there was travel restrictions in, in Somaliland. I knew that I couldn't travel solo, but I would try it anyways. And I got, I got caught by the military and they were really good about it. Like, like I didn't have guns pointed at me or anything, but because of back to the, back to the way the trajectory of your life can be changed. The trajectory of this trip trip was changed because all of a sudden I'm back in, in Hargeisa, the capital of the, of Somaliland. And, uh, a Somali guy sitting on a on a street corner says to me in English. He says, "How are you today?" And, and I, he's got a bit of an English twang to his his uh, his voice. And I said, "Oh, we're, you're from the UK?" And he goes, oh, "I'm from here, but I've been in Holland in the UK for you know 30 years, or whatever it was." And we started to talk. And when I come back from Shimbutas, uh, he helped me uh, you know get soldiers to travel with me. And and then when I come back, I, I I'll look you up. His name was Musa. And I said, you know, we'll hang out together grab a bite to eat because he helped me. And next thing you know, um, I had done research on Somaliland and realized that there had been, uh, in the 1990s, a genocide there called the Hargeisa Holocaust and uh, that nobody knows about. So when I got back, I started asking some questions about this. Next thing I know, through my digging and sort of, of pushing him and doing some more research, we went to the 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 Hargeisa Holocaust or the genocide um, war crimes investigations group, these old men who had been involved in the genocide as victims, they were fighting the Somalis that were attacking the capital Hargeisa at that time. And I mean, I'm sitting there with, with, with genocide investigators and we went to a mass grave and we, it was, it, it just turned into a Crazy. whole different trip. And Shimbaris, the mountain is, it is a beautiful part of the trip. You know, it was it was hilarious because the one soldier wasn't fit enough to carry his AK-47, so I had to carry an AK-47 for him. <laughs> and, you know, and uh, but the the real um, uh, cherished part of the trip for me now is the fact that mm-hmm. I spent time with these old men who had seen these horrific things, and I was I was in the dirt in this in this in these mass graves that look like a farmer's field outside of Calgary. There's no there's mm-hmm. no evidence that anybody's mm. buried there and there's 300 people in this grave or 119 in that one or and it's there's it's, it's just amazing what travel can do right does it does that happen on most of your adventures it does that yeah. does that like pinball machine you know yeah you, you, oh you, for you, sure you go there for you have a very you have strategic a, you have a, a target and you're aiming at that target yeah. but you know that your arrow is not going to fly straight it's going to deflect off that mm. branch or crosswind mm. or whatever, and it's going to take you there. You eventually get there, yeah. hopefully. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you, you have screw-ups. I've had lots of screw-ups, and you fail. But on the way there, it's it's incredible. You just don't know where you're going to go, and that's what travel is. I mean, that's what adventure is. is I think it's setting off a vacation is going to a destination and knowing exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know exactly that your bed's going to look like your bed here in Calgary. You're going to have air conditioning in your room. You're going to have unlimited drinks. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a sushi bar in the place, a nice pool and a nice beach. You're going to get on your charter flight home at this day and come home and you'll have a tan and stories to tell. And you'll probably be 
five pounds fatter from laying on the beach and doing nothing. But that's mm-hmm. that's just going on vacation, yep. which I don't do those types of I was, things. I was going to say. <laughs> but when you tr- when you go on an adventure travel, you don't know what's going to happen. Yep. You have a, you have an idea, and you aim for that, and then just shit happens on the way. How long how long do you each each trip is different. Yeah. How long does it take you to plan these things out? It depends on uh, how complex it is. I mean, when I went to Iran, we talked about Somalia and Iraq, but when I went to Iran, it took me two years to get a, a visa to go there. Mm-hmm. And I finally got a visa and off I went. When I, when I was climbing in Russia in the late 1990s, it took me a while to get a visa as well. So that type of stuff can can um, uh, add time to it. Yep. But the actual planning, I mean, I think I, if, if, if I could just not have to worry about uh, the, the government bureaucracy. Yep. I think I could put together a trip pretty quickly. And I, I'd always stay fit, so I never have to go, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to, you know. train. i got to train for six months before I even think of that. I'm ready to go all the time, locked and loaded. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you come up with the creative idea. Yeah. And, you know, take all the, the red tape and visas aside. Mm-hmm. You can do enough research in a short amount of time, get all your safety things in check, and you're, yeah. like, good to go Yeah. I mean, the, the, the ocean roll was not that quick because... You know, that involved a, a whole different aspect. I mean, I had to get my uh, marine operator's, radio operator's license, which is similar to the one I have as a pilot, but uh, that was one requirement I had to do. And these are my own requirements. Like, yep. um, like I, I literally made a list of what I needed to do to become an ocean roarer because there's no book on it. Yep. And, uh, and the training I thought I needed, so, so I had to do my, uh, like... Um, uh, ocean survival training, sea mm-hmm. survival training, mm-hmm. you know, so that's a, that's an actual in-person course where you're in a swimming pool or at yeah. a lake. And, and then I, um, I did, uh, my, um, what was it called? Like it's, uh, uh, like a, a yacht master training. Mm-hmm. So basically how to sail and how to navigate at sea, how to read tides. Cause you, you, you had none of that in your back pocket. Well, I was pretty experienced. I'd taken the ferry once from Prince Rupert to Charlotte City. <laughs> top deck on the zero, bottom. Yeah, top. <laughs> you actually drove on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I did an adventure race. Well, I've been on that ferry twice. I did an adventure race once in the Queen Charlotte's where, I, uh, where we went across without a vehicle. That was interesting because I got picked off the top of a mountain um, after an injury by a Coast Guard helicopter. But I had no ocean experience at all, zero. I did sea kayaking in the Queen Charlotte's with the Janet and the kids in there a little yeah. bit. Those. So because pe- not everyone's going to know your entire backstory, yeah. what was this rowing trip? So in uh, 2016, well, to make a long story uh, longer, uh, a friend of mine was diagnosed with uh, cancer. One of our pilots, a good friend of mine, Corey, um, fit, not that this matters, but he, he, he wasn't the, mm-hmm. your typical client for cancer. And um, I decided that I wanted to try and raise money for the Alberta Cancer Foundation because of Corey. So um, I was planning on an ocean rowing trip. I wanted to row from mainland North America to mainland Europe, which is unusual because most people when they cross the Atlantic, if you 99% of the time if you see a, a crossing of the Atlantic Ocean, it's it's from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean, usually Antigua. Why 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 down there? Because the that's Easy. the trade winds. Okay. So the actual winds are it's like a call it a highway of air mm-hmm. blowing across. It'll be like a Chinook day going from Canmore to Calgary. You're, you, you know you're going to have a tailwind, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a, a, a following winds all the way from Europe to uh, to the New World. And that's how, for example, how Columbus came that route. He left from the Canary Islands and ended up in the Caribbean. Gotcha. It's warm. You don't have the bad storms you have yep. in the North Atlantic. And it's island to island. But I wanted to do continent to continent. And... Um, so I wanted to add a little bit to it, and I wanted to do it in the north, meaning the North Atlantic, because I'm from Canada, and I wanted to go from 
you know, I wanted to go from Canada to France. I mean, that's the way my ancestor and my yeah. dad's side of the family came. I thought that'd be kind of cool to mm -hmm. go in reverse. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I started doing my research. I bought a, uh, uh, ocean rowing boat that I had made in, um, in England. And, uh, yeah, next thing I know, after probably close to a year of prep courses, uh, getting the boat courses, made, yep, talking to people, yeah, reading book after book after book on, um, uh, how to handle storms at sea. Yeah. Cause this isn't, yeah. It's yeah. not like you, it's not getting on a bike and being yeah. comfortable getting yeah, lost yeah. out there. You yeah. Know, you like, can't just pull over when yeah. you're having a bad day. Right. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, that, that one, um, that one, Jeff was, um, you know, my, my, my slogan on my website is uh, step out, shove off yeah. and stepping out refers to unzipping the tent at the high camp on Everest without oxygen at night and then going to the top T it took, uh, you know, it took a little bit of, um, uh, um, you know, focus to pull that zipper down on that tent fly and step outside. And then, mm. and then at 5.45 in the morning, uh, shoving off from the dock in Nova Scotia, knowing that, you know, I had a hundred days of food. I didn't know what was going to happen out there. Yeah. And, uh, so that's shoving off the dock and, and it's, it's a reference to all of us being able to get out of our ruts and shove off from, from comfort and conformity and, and our, the, you know, our day-to-day -day life and do something, um, I don't know if it's extraordinary, but it's something that really pushes you, right? So, what do you, you know, besides the physical, you know, what the physical toll it takes to do it? What do you, how do you, I love your creativity to come up with these ideas is really interesting to me because mm. they're just so far out there, mm. and it takes a, a very unique person to come up with the idea. Number one, but when you're, you know, doing something physical, it's the you're by yourself. Mm -hmm. That inner struggle in your brain. How do you? What does that look like in, a, in, in an extreme situation like that? And how do you, do you just look at it like day to day? Today you mean like day. when the shit hits the fan? Just, but even just. Or the, just the regular day. Just, just the day. Like yeah. how do you even, where is your, just to summon the energy, like just to do it and just to deal with your inner brain about good days, bad days and just like. Yeah. And I think that, that's a good one because, uh, you know, I, I, I've got uh, a fairly um, extensive uh, outdoor pedigree now because of the stuff I've done. Yep. And just like I'm an experienced airline captain, you may not instantly recognize that you recognize a situation, mm. but you've been there before. Mm. I felt the airplane do this. I've seen the instruments do this. I've heard the engine like, and you know how to react because you've got that experience. Yep. And experience, you know, is made up of hours and hours and hours of, of not no mistakes and then making big mistakes and learning from those mistakes and learning from the, the, the tough stuff that goes on and realizing you can get through it. I think my airline training, my pilot training has really helped me in, in tough situations in the outdoors. I don't take shortcuts. Mm. I am very careful about all the safety procedures. Mm -hmm. I make checklists. I had a, I had an abandoned ship checklist, for example, for my boat that I made. Um, when I was on Everest, I, you know, I, I triple checked everything, whether it's the way mm -hmm. the tents set up or tied down because I don't want to get blown off a cliff with it or mm -hmm. the way my harness is done up or just before I rappel off a cliff on the summer ridge of Everest, Everest that it's all triple checked type mm -hmm. of thing. And so I really lean back on in, in uh, situations that are challenging, I, I, I lean back on sort of that, that, um, that checklist um, uh, attitude. Yep. And um, and then when it comes to these these long days of, of suffering mm -hmm. or or hours of suffering or I um, I I've got enough experience to know that 
it, it, you are going to cherish this moment mm-hmm. so much when it's done and you look back on it, even mm-hmm. though you want to quit mm-hmm. so badly, you know that what you're, what you're producing with this effort and by not quitting is the sweetest result at mm-hmm. the end. Because you know that if you quit, you're not going to have that feeling. Yeah. And it's a real, it's, it's a real, um, you know this, everybody knows that when you set out to do something and you suffer through it and you accomplish it, there's nothing better than that. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no, there, anything that's easy, you don't remember, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it's those, those hard days in the outdoors um, for me that I feel, you know, at the end of the day or the end of the expedition or if the goal was achieved or when I'm, you know, on the approach back into Calgary, looking down, you know, that Janet and the kids are going to be at the airport mm-hmm. or, you know, that's where you feel, wow, I've done it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, all you're doing is thinking about the next trip. Yeah. You know, as I'm coming into that yeah. dock in mm-hmm. France, I'm like, okay, what's the next thing? Mm-hmm. That's just being wired differently though, right? You're, you're, you're marching to a different beat than... Yeah, I don't know because I'm, I can't be in everybody else's head, but yeah. yeah. But so when you're out there, like it was this rowing trip specifically, by yourself for that long, what are you like... What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the next trip? Are you thinking about survival? Are you thinking about your family? Are you thinking about business? Like, what are you, are you just like focused on the movement? Like, yeah, you think like, you think about uh, family lots, you really miss home. And yeah. you know that that you're this speck in the wild blue yonder of the North Atlantic. Like, and they're having a full life at home. Like mm-hmm. Janet's busy with whatever the kids are up to. She's busy with her multiple businesses. Mm-hmm. There's stampedes going on in Calgary. And you're just this spec who every once in a while she'll go in or friends or whoever or people following the expedition will see as this as this um this gps spot Blipping. going across the north atlantic at three knots right <laughs> and uh and uh and it's uh yeah it's it's mentally challenging but at the same time i don't have any secret sauce when it comes to mental toughness yeah. i think human beings are unbelievably tough i mean that's that's that's, that's why there's almost 8 billion of us is cuz we can handle anything mm-hmm. i just think that nowadays you know there seems to be this um this uh, notion that suffering is not good and and that you can't put up with it but uh we are really designed to suffer i mean we We've walked across continents. We've walked around the planet looking for things to eat or water or or new territory mm-hmm. or new lands, and and we can we can handle it. And I know that. So when I'm in an, in a really low spot, I go, you know what? You're in a state of the art uh, fiberglass ocean rowing boat with satellite comms um, tracking. I've got a sat phone. I can call somebody if I want to send a text message. Like mm. get get over yourself. You're okay. And I and I knew it was going to take me between, you know, two months and three months to get across. I ended yeah. up doing it just under two months. And it was uh, now I look back and then it's just this tiny little part of my life, mm-hmm. right? And I knew that. I was thinking about that. I go, you know, you're going to think back on this and go, this was nothing. So, <laughs> so you got to be able to think like that. But do, do you? Um, being a solo, like doing a lot of these adventures solo, you're super comfortable in your own head. Mm-hmm. Just the quietness of everything yeah. around you, and just yep. it's just mm-hmm. it's calm. It, you you can be calm mm-hmm. by yourself in the middle of all this. Yeah, and then and then you you also enjoy these these moments where you wish you could share with somebody, especially yeah. with the with the family. But like you know when you're you know, rowing the boat across the North Atlantic on a kind of a gray day like we have here in Calgary, not this cold, those like maybe 10 or 12 degrees. And exactly like today, though, light winds, gray skies, mm-hmm. and like cobalt gray sea. And all of a sudden there's a whale right here 
like 60 centimeters to my right. There's a whale's eye looking at me right there. Blowhole covered in whale snot, whale breath. And there's this guy right there. He's looking at me. I'm looking at him. And then he dives and his tail hits the boat and he swims around. I'm just like, what the hell? Like, how is this even? That's worth the whole trip right there. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like like stuff like stuff like that. You're just you're sitting there, you got your you're holding your oars and this happens, you're like, holy shit. What's a, what's I? a kid from Mournville doing like seeing this? I mean, a big adventure for me as a little kid was walking the four miles, because that's my daddy said it was a four mile walk to my grandparents' farm on the railway tracks. And now I've got this. I've got a whale right here. So did what about the um the the level of fear? You know, water is a, is a mm. scary is a scary place. Yeah. Most people aren't comfortable rowing. I've seen a picture of the boat. You know, it's yeah. a tricked-out boat, but it's yeah. still a dinky boat in a yeah. giant blue sea. Six meters long and 1.4 meters wide. Yeah. Small. Yeah. Is fear, does fear enter into your equation? It's, uh, you have to have fear to survive in the outdoors, for sure. You have to re- that gives you respect for the environment? Yeah, uh, 100%. You have to have fear. I mean, you, you have to know that you can screw up and you have to always do what I call sense making is what you're doing making sense does this make sense and okay so obviously solo ocean rowing may not make sense to some people but it's all relative but but you know you put in the legwork do all the courses you have mm-hmm. all the checklists you do do everything you possibly can to mitigate the risk yeah that's, exactly that's kind of your yeah exactly same thing as flying an airplane yeah and, um, but yeah, yeah, fear comes in a lot. I've been scared, you know, shitless lots of times, you know, tons of times. Falling down crevasses, started avalanches, um, had tents blow apart of me in some pretty chilly places, um, had gear failures. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's part of it. If you're going to stick your neck out on, into these environments, you're going to get scared. I mean, we've, you know, we had a guy die in our expedition to Everest. Uh, we had two guys die in our expedition to Everest. Like, there's stuff can go wrong mm-hmm. really quickly. Mm-hmm. And you, and you, I mean, obviously, um, you wouldn't do this stuff if you thought it could happen to you. But we all think it doesn't happen to us, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, we all know that, it, especially if you're playing this these games, you know, it yeah. can happen to you. Yeah. And a lot of it's just luck. And um, is it? Luck? Is there a lot of luck involved? You think? Yeah, like, I mean, you really step back and think about all like all these crazy places that you. Yeah, there's a lot of luck involved. I mean, um, you know, when you're walking across a minefield on the Iraq-Iran border, uh, even though you're trying to go boulder to boulder and not step on the turned up ground, there's, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. landmine warning signs all over. Some of that's luck. Um, You know, I think you create a lot of your own luck. But if you're going across, you know, a a 3,000 meter high ice field that's a kilometer across and an avalanche starts... Mm -hmm. 2,000 meters above you, that's just bad luck. You yeah. can't, you can't prevent that. And, and I realize that there's, there's certain, um, um, objective risks out there that are, uh, that are out of my control for mm-hmm. sure. So that, that is part of this game, if you want to call it that, or part of this life. But yeah, I get scared for sure. And, and water was a big thing, Jeff, because one year previous to that, uh, expedi- or the, the rowing trip across the North Atlantic, we'd lost our oldest son to drowning. So he was canoeing, on the uh, Mackenzie River in Norman Wells. He was a pilot as well. He got his first job as a bush pilot up there. He had been up there for 21 days. He was starting to date a girl that worked at a local um, hotel, or the hotel there. She was a, a university student from Toronto spending the summer up there, and he waited till she was off shift and said she was gonna, either going to go canoeing together, and the Mackenzie River is the second largest river in North America. It's mm-hmm. about five kilometers across right there, and 
they were 20 meters from shore canoeing along and uh, a wave entered the boat, uh, which obviously made it unstable. Another one flipped them. They laughed about it when they hit the water because the water was so cold and, you know, within a matter of minutes, they were drifting out towards the center of this big subarctic river and um, uh, she swam for shore and long story short, she got rescued and and uh, Richard uh, couldn't hang on long enough uh, onto this boat and, and he drowned. So um, for me to, um, to, to do this ocean crossing was uh, um, cathartic, mm-hmm. but it was also a, a real um, uh, scary thing for Janet to put up with the fact that, that I was um, yeah. going to row the ocean. But I think that I've, um, I found a lot of solace in outdoor pursuits after losing Richard. I can still remember the, the, uh, the oh, it's not an anniversary, but the date of his death out there, July 15th and um, the year previous, so um, uh, two years previous, sir, that he died. And um, I can remember clearly I was surrounded by dolphins. The sun was shining. There was dolphins, all, hundreds of dolphins no all way. around me jumping. And No way. So, yeah, and I don't think I can get that anywhere else. I couldn't get that no. um, in... A therapy session. No. I couldn't get that in in a in a a, a man-made church. I no. couldn't get that in a in a in a in the bottom of a bottle of alcohol either. It was um, mm-hmm. that's where I go. So I if I'm really suffering in the outdoors, I really um, it really seems to help with that for sure. But yeah, doing a water trip was a difficult thing to to do. Yeah, yeah, like for sure. yeah, to yeah for your wife to yeah to obviously. You know, not to be okay, not to let you do it, but just to know that there is. Yeah, that's one trip where we um, we had we had I, I took Janet and the kids, our two surviving kids, and we flew to England. I wanted to show them the boat, so they had a level of comfort. Mm. And um, uh, before the boat was, ironically, shipped to Canada for me to 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 row it back. But uh, so they got to see it. They said, "Wow, this thing's incredible. It's you know." It's actually about as wide as your table, but a little bit longer. But, you know, it's really well made. And she, she met the builder. And our, our youngest boy, Eric, and I went out and paddled the, or rode this boat around mm. and ran the electronics. And completely different mindset now that they saw it. It's like anything. You need an yeah. education on stuff you don't know about. Yeah. But on the way home, we flew through Reykjavik, Iceland. And Jan and I went for dinner that night. And that was a tough night. It's one of the one of the nights I remember the most about, you know, pre um, adventure departure where, you know, we were having a bite to eat and then we were having a glass of wine there and she, she was in tears. She said, Mm -hmm. you know, like why, what makes you have to do this stuff? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't explain it. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so there, it's not all fun and games for sure. I mean, there's a, there is a, um, uh, uh, you know, there's a, a good, not a good, but there's a, there's a certain probability that you're going to leave loved ones behind, um, Mm -hmm. um, if something goes wrong on one of these trips, yep. but uh, for me, it's um, it's I'd say it'd be less tragic than somebody eating themselves to death or yep. drinking themselves to death or dying of a life of inactivity. And yep. and, and uh, nobody ever says he was reckless if somebody dropped out of a heart attack, right? Mm-hmm. They would never say that. Or, but if I got hit by an avalanche or a rope broke or you know, God forbid, something went wrong in an ex- expedition and. Um, you know, I'd be that there'd be hush hush. He was so crazy. He took all these risks, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's just, it's such a, it's such a, it's wild for me to think about like the dolphins, you know, the dolphins on the, on the, mm. like that stuff is, mm-hmm. you just, it, 
all this work, like this just years leading to in the, these little moments. Like it's yeah. just, it's. I had points where there was hundreds of dolphins everywhere I looked and they were jumping all over and they'd come beside the boat and they'd lay on their side and look at me and squeak and then you know, lay on their side and then jump up in the air and give me shows. And in, in, the, in some of the most ferocious storms where I had eight meter high waves and 40 knot winds and the boat was capsizing, I could hear the dolphins under my boat squeaking because you know, I laid on the bottom of the boat. I had mm-hmm. a, like a, a, basically a, a thermorest on the bottom of a sleeping bag and, uh, and I could hear them. And it was kind of comforting because they are, you know, they are so intelligent and mm-hmm. so observant and it, was, it, it felt kind of nice. But at the same time, I remember one night, this is a little off topic, but speaking of wildlife out there, I was, it was a dead calm night I guess it wasn't dead calm because I had my sea anchor out, which is a giant underwater parachute that you put out to stop you drifting the wrong way. So it slows down the boat's drift because the wind's obviously pushing you wherever it wants when you're in a rowboat, especially when you're sleeping. Hmm. So it was pushing me back to Canada. And so I had thrown out this, I had 111 meters of rope on this, um, I remember it exactly, 111 meters of, of heavy duty rope on this huge underwater parachute. So you drop it down, it inflates under the water mm-hmm. and it causes a ton of drag. So even in a ferocious storm, it would slow me down to just a few knots. Mm. And uh, I had thrown the thing out because I was drifting back to Canada. And How long are you sleeping on this thing? Like it, every ki- night's different, right? Every night, depends on the, on the storm. The swell, like, yeah, the storms and the yep. swells. And sometimes you don't because the storms are so bad. Like I, I made a system to strap myself to the floor for the bad storms because mm-hmm. you'd get thrown around. And actually a friend of mine just rode the North Atlantic from... Um, from Manhattan to uh, the UK, and he uh, he did some damage. Like mm-hmm. I think he cracked a rib and all kinds. Because it's just stuff. like you're in a washroom. Like a yeah, washroom, just yeah, it's pretty violent. Mm-hmm. It's like being in a car accident when you get hit by these big waves. Mm-hmm. But um, I was I was laying in there, and you know when you're in the tent in the Canadian Rockies, and you can hear something crunching outside your tent, and you think that's oh, probably a grizzly, or like what is this? And you're like, where's my bear spray, or depending where you are, like or shotgun if you're in polar bear country, and and I was surrounded by whales. They're all around me. It was pitch black. But they're in the water, slapping the water with their tails. And all I could think about was that one's going to get caught in my, in my sea anchor. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have to mm-hmm. like cut the anchor because mm-hmm. it's, he's going to start, he or she's going to start swimming away, towing me God knows where. And I thought, if they start towing me <laughs> east towards France, I'll just let it go for a while. <laughs> Nobody's no. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. It was just, and it felt exactly like I was in a tent with a bear around the tent. Do you feel like... Do you, you know, listening to these stories, and I'm sure you got like days and hours <laughs> of stories, but do you ever feel like, um, holy shit, that this, I, I experienced this by myself, this is too bad? Or do you ever feel like this should be a movie? Like this, it's just. Yeah, sometimes you have experiences where you're like, shit, I wish somebody could have seen that. Like this is un- unbelievable. But it doesn't even, it doesn't, you just keep moving forward in life though right yeah it's a moment in time it's yeah. an experience yeah it's mind-altering to yeah. like normal civilians that don't do this stuff yeah. Yeah. but it's just it's um that's just it. it's just a moment in time right? yeah it's just like but but then it's it's fantastic because I, I get to share these stories i mean what you and i are doing now is a 21st century version of standing across a yeah. campfire mm-hmm. and talking shit yeah right it's yeah. the exact same thing and now we've got an audience versus just the two of us yeah and um and I think it's important to share these stories. I, I think that even though at first blush and you look at some of my stories, you're like, okay, this guy, he's an endurance athlete, he likes doing this crazy shit. Um, but if you, really, if you really listen to the story, there's always something you can take away from it, right? Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's little lessons that you learn. And I think all of us, including me, 
you know, you grow up wanting to know what happens when you see a picture of a climber on a distant ridge that's disappearing under the clouds. Like, what happened above those clouds? Mm. Or if you see a boat disappear over the horizon, mm. a small boat, like, what is going on on the other side of the horizon? And I think kind of what I do or what adventurers do that do this type of thing is we bring back the story from above the clouds. We bring back the story from the other side of the horizon and share it with people. And then I'm just a regular Calgary dad. Like I, I have a job like this morning I was flying uh, for work and then I came over here. But but it just shows you that anybody can do this stuff if it's in you to do it or if you if you really want to do it. So which is you. I'm just a regular, it's so funny. And that's what, that's what, you know, when Kurt did the introduction and he's telling me about you, he's like, yeah, this dude, he like, he went up Everest by himself and rode across the Atlantic. And I'm like, he lives in Calgary. Like, I need to talk to this guy. <laughs> like it's, it's, it, it, it is like the, the new school version of just sitting around a campfire telling stories, which is, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's very unique. How do you, do you, do you, as you said, when you're like just about to get to France and you're thinking about the next idea. Do you have the next idea in your back pocket right now? or? Yeah, so after that, I wanted to go to uh, ski to the South Pole and then climb the highest mountain in Antarctica. So I did about 250 miles of ski to the South Pole. It's a long story, but I had a custom-made uh, carbon fiber sled made in Norway, uh, a Norwegian company. I think they make them in Germany, actually. And uh, when the sled arrived in Chile, uh, it was in a warehouse and had my name on it. And there was a stack of about eight of these sleds for other uh, adventurers, other people trying to do the same type of thing. And my sled was warped. Um, so it was, imagine a, a, uh, one of those red plastic sleds that yep. you had as a kid. Well, the back right-hand corner was up about 10 centimeters off the floor of, the, of this warehouse in Chile. And the front left side was about 10 centimeters. And I thought, well, that's weird. Like, that can't be right. So mm. contacted the manufacturer and we had FaceTime calls and showing them this and taking photos and they're analyzing it. And they said, no, we think it'll be okay. Because um, once I had the 250 pounds of gear in the sled that I was towing to the South Pole, it was obviously flexed flat. Yeah. But then, so off I went. And as I started to ski to the South Pole and burn fuel and take food out of it, got lighter and lighter. And mm -hmm. then, of course, the warp comes back. Mm -hmm. And the it wouldn't track straight. It would go off on a hard angle all the time. So I'd be skiing along. I'm like, what? The, what's wrong with me? I can't, I can't. This thing feels like it weighs a thousand pounds. I turn around and it had done a hard turn. It's like dra you're like you're dragging it sideways. Dragging it sideways. And um, so I'd repack it, retie it, tried everything, and eventually I couldn't. I, I just I wasn't making the distance I had to make every day to uh, to make it to the South Pole and then make my flight to the base of the highest mountain in Antarctica and uh, climb that. So I had to, um, I had to abandon the Antarctica South Pole expedition. Yep. So I had alluded to this earlier, but that's a failure. It's a failure on my part because I didn't stick to my guns and, and say, I'm not taking the sled, you guys. You got to figure out something else. And there were other sleds there that, that um, I could have used oh. that weren't being used, and I should have taken a straight mm. sled. Hmm. So, you know. Is that one? Is that one? Because because it was a technical, do you mm -hmm. want to go re do redo oh, it? Oh yeah, of course. It's like yeah, I've always wanted. I want to go to both poles. Yeah, I'd love to go back there again. It's is, something else. That is some some part of the world. I can't like. It's just endless snow and ice and mountains and crevasses. And it's just spectacular. But I, I was able to climb like New Year's Eve twenty nineteen. So yeah, that New Year's Eve twenty nineteen, I was standing on the highest mountain in Antarctica, like minus thirty five. 
light winds, sun was shining, and uh, that had completed my quest to climb the highest mountain on all seven continents. So it was a partial victory, yeah. but I wanted to do both. And that was another cancer fundraiser as well. So, so the highest peaks in these seven continents, that was just another creative idea? Is, is, is that a thing in the, well, one of in my, the adventure thing? Or like? Yeah, yeah. One of my heroes was uh, Pat Morrow. He's a, uh, uh, he was living in Canmore for years. Now he lives down in, near Kimberley, B.C., Telemark skier as well. And he's the first person uh, to ever climb the seven summits. Um, there was an American who claimed he was first, but the American uh, climbed Mount Kosciuszko, the highest mountain in Australasia, Southern Asia. So mm -hmm. Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Malaysia, etc. We group it all together in the mountaineering world and you pick the highest mountain there. And um, Kosciuszko, like I've run up it, it's nothing. It's like 8,000 feet above sea level. Which is funny because I was in Australia and I was in a snowstorm at the top of that thing. <laughs> but uh, um, the highest mountain, the, the Moro version is you climb the, a much higher peak in a very remote part of the world. It's called Papua Province in, in um, Indonesia. And I've, I've climbed that here with Stone Age tribes. It's high. It looks like Cape country, but you're in the jungle. And um, so Pat Moro was my hero because he was the first, one of my mentors growing up because he was one of the first, oh, he was the first person to ever do that. And uh, so, so I wanted to do that ever since I was, I read his book, The Quest for the Seven Summits. Yep. And strangely enough, ironically and unbelievably, he hired me as a speaker a few years ago to speak at a thing. That, that, so that was bizarre. So I stayed crazy. in his house. No way. <laughs> yeah, it was just crazy. <laughs> and he's just, he's like, he's incredible. So anyway, um, yeah, so the are, Seven are Summits. They, is it a thing? Like the Seven Summits? Yeah, is, oh, yeah. is there a group of people that have done this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you climb the highest mountain on all seven continents and we don't count you know, most of us don't count Australia, even though I've been up there just, you know, we were driving by and I had snowshoes and I ran up there, but um, you, uh, you, we don't count Kosciuszko, no mm. offense to Australians, but uh, <laughs> Cartens uh, is a pretty serious, um, just the expedition in there is nuts. Seven days through the jungle and they call it the hardest hiking like trail in the world. It's really crazy, mm. really crazy. You've got um, these stone age people called the Dene and the men wear just like a penis gourd, no shoes. They carry the backpack on the. They carry your your your. If you have a bag, they carry it on your on their head of the porters, and they and they go through terrain that looks exactly like K country, with bare feet, pounding down rocky no slopes and. Not even yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, um, seven summits is a thing, and then there's even uh, people now doing the seven volcanoes. So a friend of mine in Kuwait, he's uh, going to go finish the seventh, uh, the, the highest um, volcano on all the continents. Hmm. So he's about to finish his in Antarctica uh, this winter. Crazy. Yeah. Do you, do, you have, do you have a checklist of ideas you want to get through? Or does every year do you come up with something like? There's always sort of these, these like items ones, that, are, like the, that are rooted there that, yeah. I, that I, I'm aiming for. Yeah. Um, and then there's these things that pop up, like yeah. Somalia, just boom. Like, and then Iraq. And when I, I went to Iraq, I went, holy shit, like, this looks really cool. Iraq's got these massive snow-covered mm. glaciated peaks that nobody ever talks about. And then when I went to Iran, too, I saw, I, I, all I did was I saw a picture of the highest mountain in Iran. I thought, I got to go there and try that. So <laughs> to be skiing down a, a high mountain in Iraq or Iran is It doesn't sound like it's from this world. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Because, yeah. you know, a lot of, well, I, I'm not well-traveled, but you just have these references in your brain from media yeah. and movies of like yeah. what Iraq is supposed to and Yeah, yeah, it looks like, I mean, I, I've got a video where I go, here I am in the Swiss Alps, and I'm panning across, I'm narrating this, and I go, 
this isn't the Swiss Alps. This is Iraq. And it looks just like Switzerland. There's a village down below me and there's ice covered mountains and mm-hmm. raging rivers. And it's Crazy. not what you think. Yeah. Do you, do you have a, um, like a crew of people, like-minded people around the world that you can kind of talk to and like, do you like yeah, you meet, storytell and, and share experiences, good and bad. And like, do you have yeah, a you, network that you have? Or yeah, is this- you, you meet people and you stay in touch with them. And it's sort of the way we all do now. Like, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm planning an expedition that I can't, uh, release yep. quite right now, but it's, uh, it's somewhere in the Middle East and, um, it is, uh, and it's, it's a guy who's, who is fellow adventurer who started following me on Instagram, sent me a message and, mm. and now we're planning a trip. So that's the way it is nowadays yeah. where before there's, you know, yeah. there's, there's no such thing as yeah. phone calls and, mm-hmm. and, um, lonely planet guidebooks once mm-hmm. you get there and. And that type of thing. But yeah, you, you get a network. You get to know people so you can say, hey, I want to go here. What do you know about this? And yeah, yeah it's like anything. It's like uh, probably like you with the uh, with the local um, water skiing totally. groups around here. Alberta is a small place for that. You probably, everybody probably knows everybody, right? Yep. So yeah, there is, a, there is a bit of a network of like-minded uh, people for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting, this, this new experience, whatever it's going to be, mm-hmm. I can't wait to hear, but it comes from, you know, Instagram like there's a foundation of how the communication starts. Yeah. You know, you reverse back to the start of the conversation. Yep. And how these devices I know. can slow you I down. Know. So it's just, it's just ne- it's a, not a necessary evil, but it's so... Well, the world is researching a, these expeditions are all done in a laptop crazy. now. Right? And a map. I mean, you can do a lot of uh, dreaming just by looking at a map for sure. Just but literally yeah. picking the... But it's like anything. There's a good and bad with anything, right? Like, mm. uh, yes. Uh, like uh, alcohol is a social lubricant, totally. and then all of a sudden it's not. It's an, a life wrecking thing. <laughs> totally. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, totally. it's the same thing with with uh, with yep. with with um, social media and phones and that type of thing. But yeah, I mean, it's it's opened up. I've been, you know, that's ca- I've gotten so many speaking gigs from podcast interviews. I've got speaking gigs from posts I've done on Instagram or I've had mm-hmm. other adventures reach out and mm-hmm. you know other ocean rowers for example or mountaineers asking for advice and yep. and uh, and and it's also a conduit for some uh, really valuable and frankly flattering mm-hmm. um, contacts you get like hey I saw this or I really admire what you do uh, I, I, I was at a talk you did at such and such a place mm-hmm. and because of that um, my wife and I have done this mm-hmm. or like, I, I got a thing the other day from, uh, I did an American podcast and this is f- several years ago now. And I got a thing from a, a pastor in Oklahoma telling me about how listening to that podcast, it just made him decide to get off his ass, get in shape and, um, set out to climb all the 14,000 foot high peaks in Colorado with his wife. Crazy. And he was a sedentary guy before. Crazy. So he sent me a picture of him and his wife. When no I saw way. It. Yeah. I don't know how he got a hold of me. I think it was, that one was on an email. So, um, did, yeah. when, when you decided that this was going to be like a big part of your life, mm-hmm. did you have any idea that it would turn into that? No. Sp- speaking gigs, people no. reaching out to you. Did, like no. Not even... Not even a clue. Well, it, it's funny. We, we talked about the reason that I'm here today is because of, of Kurt Christensen from BoCycle, one of the owners. And I go back many, many years to, uh, to BoCycle, just like you do, Jeff. And the first speaking gig I ever did was at BoCycle. In the, they cleared some stuff out of the, you know, the central area mm-hmm. there where all the bikes are, sort of in front of the cash register. And I, you know, I brought up a screen mm-hmm. and I had, I don't even know what I was using to edit my videos back then. I'd just come back from Everest. 
think I came back from Everest in June, and this was in September. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't have anything figured out yet with respect to speaking or, or, or the 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 tech behind it or anything. Yeah. And shit wasn't working right. Mm-hmm. The sound was off. It was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Like, but it's like anything. Like you look back on your yeah. your infant steps at whether it's water skiing or starting a podcast. Maybe not with you because I can see you've got a pretty pro <laughs> setup here. But you make a lot of mistakes, yeah. right? And I was not a, like, I was, I mean, I can make a hell of a PA announcement as an airline captain, <laughs> but, but it's a lot different when you're standing in front of a group of people, right? So it's interesting. We've come full circle that, that they're sort of the ones that set me off. And then all of a sudden, Hey, I saw you at Bo Cycle and mm-hmm. could you come talk to them? I'm like, really? After that shit show? And then, and then, you, you know, you, you start to progress and learn just like with anything. Yeah. But like not even, it's literally just you having ideas that you want to accomplish for yourself. And then it turns into this. Yeah, network of like like-minded people, opportunities, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, and it's yeah, it's fantastic. I'm just I'm happy that that little silver ball going down that pinball machine 40 years ago uh, bounced the way it bounced and allows me to do this kind of stuff. And and you know there's a, there's an investment involved in, too. There's a, I've spent a lot of money doing these trips. Yeah. I don't make money doing it. I make money as a, as a public speaker, but my primary job is flying airplanes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also invest heavily in staying fit because you can't pull off these things if you're just a weekend warrior yeah. who trains a few yeah. months of the year. Yeah, like it's 24 yeah. seven. I do something every, I shouldn't say 24 seven. I do something seven days a week. Like yeah. I'm always either at the gym, running, cycling, because I want to be, like I said earlier, locked and loaded to be able to do mm-hmm. these trips. How's your body feel? Great. Yeah. yeah. I, I hurt my, um, my left knee, um, I did an Eversting in uh, September. So Eversting, for people who don't know, it's uh, I know you know what it's about, Jeff, but you you uh, get on a bike and you repeatedly ride up and down a, a, a road <laughs> until you've... you've uh, Give them some context climbed where, the where you were. <laughs> Tell them this one. I was in Revelstoke, <laughs> in, in, until Mount Revelstoke. Not the, not the ski hill, but the actual national park. And it's a, a 26K climb. You climb uh, 1,400 and some meters. And so you climb it and come back down, climb it and come back down until you've climbed 8,848 meters, which is the, um, the elevation of Everest above sea level. And uh, it's, it's some weird cycling thing. And uh, so I decided P- I want... Yes, I've never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to do it, but there, you can also do what's called a 10,000 meter one. So I wanted to do... I didn't want to just do the Everest thing. I wanted to do the tent. So I spent 23 hours and 381K riding up and down this mountain and in Revelstoke on Are my people bike. people watching you? Like, did, no. <laughs> no. But I mean, did, did, did people like go about their daily lives and they see some crazy guy going up and down? I did, don't know. Did anybody say boo? At the, well, this is how the injury happened. The very last lap, it's raining. I've done, uh, this is my, about to do my seventh lap of this climb. And I had to do a little more than seven because I, I, you want to make sure that you don't get to the bottom mm-hmm. and hit stop and realize that you're mm-hmm. 50 meters short mm-hmm. or whatever. So I, I did 10,200 and some meters just to make sure I had my bases covered. But um, I'm, I'm about to go through the closed park gate because it's nighttime. It's pouring rain. Like I was freezing. I think I had a uh, hypothermia about 10 times that evening, but uh, <laughs> it's my last lap. And this guy is coming by in a vehicle really slow and he st- he yells at his window, like right beside me, basically stopped. And he goes, are you going to the top? And, and the polite Canadian that I am, I stopped and, 
it was pitch black and the bike was still rolling. I didn't notice it. And I put my leg on, I hyperextended my left knee because the bike was still rolling. And I, and I remember going, oh, like, I think I broke something. But I, anyways, I was able to pedal. It was painful, but I was able to pedal. So, um, yeah, that, that's when you ask how my body is, that's an injury that I've got right now. Which, but is, it's, which is so ridiculous, right? Yeah. Just yeah, yeah. Put, go up and down the mountain. You could ride, 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 yeah, ride. Yeah. And, and, and I haven't run since. And I, I usually do between 100 and 120K a month of running. And then I do a lot of cycling as well. But I try and do both. Yep. And I haven't run... Uh, I haven't run one step since then. I'm just going to make sure it's fully healed before I start to run on it. But yeah, I, I mean, I've had lots of injuries. I mean, I've 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 tore um, you know tore, tore my quadricep muscle in an ultra marathon. I've lost my fingers to frostbite. I almost lost my three fingers. I almost lost my toe to frostbite on uh, biking in the Arctic. Um, I've uh, yeah, I, I I fell on my hip when I got pulled off the top of the mountain and. Uh, in a in a helicopter doing an adventure race i mean broken collarbone stuff like that like you, these are yeah. these are minor but it, generally for the amount of yeah for and a, if, as active as you are your and, I, is, and i'm like, not that young i turned 53 today today's my birthday oh, I, yeah. shit, I forgot <laughs> happy birthday I, so i knew there was something i was yeah. have to like remind myself so i uh i push it pretty hard to make sure i can and i'm you know to be honest with you i'm feeling I, I don't. I think I could be some of the fittest I've ever been. Now I think as you age, you know how to train, mm. and you don't have all the other stuff that stopped you from training. Yeah. My kids are growing up, for example, yeah. and I commute every day, no matter what the weather is, to the airport on my bike. Mm-hmm. So, you think that in itself would just keep you fit for? Yeah, I think it helps for but, sure. But if you just if you only did that, yeah, you still be a yeah. I think it would really help. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, I've been lucky. I mean, touch wood, I haven't had any, um, like, I'm not gimped up at all. I, I still feel like I can go out there and hammer. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm lucky that way. But it's a lot of work. I mean, I, yeah. but it's something I love. It's not like I'm sitting there moaning about it. But it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's something that I really focus on. It's part of my life. It's not something that I make time for. Yeah. It's something that I have to do. Yeah. Just like, you know, most people brush their teeth in the morning mm-hmm. and brush their teeth before bed. I have to work out. I got to do something. Do you, do you notice it right away? Like the day, if there's oh, a yeah. God, you know, yeah. there's a day you don't do yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. There's your attitude and your Even energy. Even Janet says, you got to get out and do something. Mm-hmm. Go for a ride, go for a run, get to the gym, whatever it is. And when I go to the gym, I'm not working out to, to you know, to look good in the mirror. I'm working out to be functionally fit for the outdoors. Yeah. So, you know, you know, like going to Everest, I, I spent, I spent a lot of time doing upper body stuff as well as the trail running and running up hills and carrying heavy loads and all this shit I normally do. But mm-hmm. think about it. If you're, if you're on a rope with your buddy and he goes down a crevasse, yeah. you got to get him out of that crevasse mm-hmm. and upper body strength will help you that way. And plus it just makes you, you know, better all around for dealing with stuff. And, yeah. um, um, I just think it's important. You got to go out there, um, with the best machine you can build because you wouldn't want to be out in the middle of the North Atlantic relying relying on your shoulders your back and your arms to power you yeah. to safety and not being able to do that because you're injured because you're like oh my shoulder's sore or my mm-hmm. elbow's got tendonitis mm-hmm. or whatever so i think it's really important that i keep fit because it's I, I for me it's not about winning a game or winning a race it's about staying alive out there yeah so which it's is important. a different it's a different uh, it's a different investment you make in your fitness when that's when that's what's you know when you know when you're walking to the top of everest I was as fit as I could possibly be, I think, at that time. But I was also just strictly rolling the dice, wondering if I had the genetics to go without O2, because a lot of it's just genetics. And just, that's it, right? Yeah. It's also... Tons of genetics. It's going to be genetics, luck, but there's... Yeah. To, to do that is... It's not It's not like you just train yourself yeah, into being able I'm to... Fit. 
yeah, this guy must be really fit. I mean, there's obviously fitness involved, but when it comes right down to it, when you're above 8,000 meters in what's called the death zone, you're relying on generations of, of genetics that you have either mm -hmm. inherited or mm -hmm. didn't inherit or, yep. and you don't know. I mean, there's speculation that the fluid that builds up on our brains at high altitude uh, without oxygen, um, which causes what's called um, cerebral edema, like pressure on the brain, fluid build up in your brain is generally what causes you to eventually die. It's either that or, or um, you get fluid build up in your lungs. So high altitude pulmonary edema. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's some speculation that they've done some studies in climbers like me who've climbed without O2 that we have a uh, a slightly bigger opening in the base of our skull that allows excess fluid to drain into our into our spinal column to relieve the pressure. I mean, so that's what I mean. It could just be yeah. a combination of fitness and genetics. Do you know? Do you do you, do you just roll the dice when you do that? When you go out for that, like to climb that, you just hope that you have the genetics yeah. to do it. You hope that you've had all the, all the training's done, all that mm -hmm. safety's done, and you just hope that genetically you're able to. Yeah, do it. when I when you end up that tent and you know. You're stepping out for 17 and a half hours of 8,000 plus meters That's what of it is. fun. 17 That's 1735 is what it took me that <laughs> night. But um, you're like, holy shit, here we go. But at the same time, Jeff, I did not have one doubt that I could do it. It's really strange. I think back about how I've got a video of the night before that when we left the tent. I'm laying there, me and my buddy. Um, he's the guy that just rode across the Atlantic, Mark Del Stanch. We're sitting there, we're talking, and, and I was just so calm. I was like, yeah, we're going to uh, head out uh, tonight or tomorrow, but we wake up about 9.30 tonight and we'll head out in the middle of the night and uh, yeah, I guess next video will be on the top. Kind of boring. That's, how, that's how I said it. <laughs> um, but but I had spent, it was interesting, my expedition, I think there was, I'm trying to remember now, 21 of us that left Kathmandu to drive to China and to Tibet and um, uh, two died, nine made it to the top uh, eight died, or sorry, eight made it to the top, two died. One guy that made it to the top died just below the summit, and um, tragically. But on the way there, you go up very slowly through all these different villages over the days because you can't just simply drive to base camp or, you're, or near base camp or you're going to die from it because it's 18,000 feet base camp. And what I would do is we'd park at some little village in Tibet and unpack, find out what grub you're place I'm sleeping in, rats running around. It was pretty funny. <laughs> and then uh, I would pack up and go for a trail run or hike up to the top of the nearest mountain that was nearby. And I did that at base camp on Everest. I, I did that at every village on the way there. I'd go off in the distance. I'd do push-ups and sit-ups and hike up valleys and climb all the peaks around base camp so that I was like hyper tuned yeah. for the... Your body kind of... And then I knew like by the time I was like, I, I was the only person on our, on our team that actually went to high camp as a climatization climb and then back mm. down to base camp again. So I knew I could do that without oxygen. Like mm. I actually felt like I was knackered and it took about a week to recover actually. But um, so it was, I was it feeling was strong. Yeah. And then I got, it was work. Oh yeah, it was work. <laughs> it was nuts. And then, uh, but I was, I got so fit and so acclimatized that my team, I found out later, were betting other Western teams that I could beat their Sherpas up to different camps. If we left together, they'd say, hey, they called me the Canadian. Bet you, uh, you know, whatever, that, that the Canadian will beat your Sherpas to the top of that uh, thing. And that's, I mean, I was just, I was just flowing the whole trip. And did, yeah. did, you, did you make a, you obviously made a conscious decision before you got there that that was going to be the game plan? Oh, do yeah. Do these, that's like, the way you do it. Oh. Well, that's, I mean. But like your way, though, of like, you know, you get to your... Hang out with yeah, the rats, no. go running. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, I made that decision. Yeah, yeah. In yeah, the hopes sure. that it would yeah. let you. I wanted to 
force my body to acclimatize to a higher level than than I needed to be. I want it to be I want to have a bit of a cushion because mm-hmm. if I got to the top and was too weak to descend, well then yeah. I'm gonna die. And that's how most people die is yeah. on the descent. And I can't I did come close to dying on the descent for sure. Like I was done. I decided I was going to die. I was going to take a nap. I was never going to wake up. And, mm-hmm. and long story short, I saw, a, a, it turned out to be a dead Canadian who had tried the year before to climb without oxygen. And he was napping up there for a year. And by looking at him and seeing the flag on him, it kept me alive and I kept on going. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I got to that point of, you were there of terminal fatigue. Yeah, I was done. I, I, I knew if I laid down, I was going to nap. It, it made perfect sense because mm-hmm. at least I'll have a long nap. I was thinking about Jan and the kids, mm-hmm. but it wasn't keeping me alive. It was, you know, it made me kind of sad a little bit, but I was so exhausted. All I wanted was sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I got to that point. So I must have had just enough mm-hmm. reserves. Just. Yeah. That extra, that extra. Yeah, that extra just that extra, whatever it was. Yeah. Is that um, uh, one and done? Will you ever do that again? We do anything, any of these, any of these adventures again? I, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do the... The northeast ridge of Everest again, and I I wouldn't do the the the, the Nepali side either, uh, unless if it was a different expedition, like a different route, something maybe that was mm-hmm. uh, not done before. Yeah, there's just too many things out there. Like yeah, I, there's more. Like yeah. your brain still. Oh geez, man. <laughs> Even in Canada, I mean, Nunavut is so full of like I, I went and climbed the highest mountain in Nunavut, 2007, um, and the guy I went with really the ninth and tenth people to ever climb it. It's on Ellesmere Island, the most you know, the, the second most northern island in Canada is a little island smaller, but it's, you know, 800, mile, uh, 800 nautical miles from the North Pole. Um, and just spectacular. Like, Nunavut's got so much stuff. Like, it's mm. it's endless up there. It's a playground. I love it. Yeah, I love <laughs> the people up there. I love, you know, 24-hour daylight. Um, it's, it's really something else. So, I mean, that's just one area. I mean, yeah. <laughs> deserts appeal to me. Nunavut appeals to me jungles you name it riding my bike like i'm just i'm having a blast this year on my bike i don't think i've ever ridden more than this like maybe like everybody that's into cycling yeah all just these yeah blast. all of a sudden everything's locked down what do we got well, yeah cool. we live cool. in such a perfect place to ride and the things like the 1a being closed mm-hmm. and it's been great i've really um buried myself on the bike so yeah because i haven't been able to travel so yeah crazy man um we need to put a bow on this thing <laughs> Unfortunately, because yeah. yeah, no uh, I could talk to you for a long time. How long have we been going for? This is like an hour and 22 Holy minutes. Holy cow. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so the only question that I ask my guests is when I say the word Calgary, where does your head go? So To the mountains. Yeah. Right off the hop, it's uh, it's to the mountains. Yeah. Not the Calgary Tower, not the Stampede, but yeah, I think the mountains and Nose Hill, those are sort of two iconic places for me did in, you, in Calgary. Did you come to Calgary um because of proximity to the mountains or to the to the outdoors or just by chance that you're I was hired by an airline uh, part of Canadian Airlines it was called Time Air a regional carrier uh, is now called through many machinations has become jazz mm. but um, in 1990 I got hired and I uh, was going to Victoria I didn't want to go to Victoria another guy I knew was hired in Calgary we did a swap I ended up in Calgary and I've been here ever since yeah. and yeah I wanted to be here because of the mountains for sure yeah it's like the ultimate the mountains and the sun. I don't like uh, gray, rainy days. Mm-hmm. I'd rather minus ten and and Blue. snow for sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's why. Cool, man. Um, thanks for making the time yeah. on your birthday. Thanks for having me. It's uh, thanks for letting me share my story. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. It's, um, I'm, I'm gonna look forward now that I you're in my world. It'll be yeah. fun to stay. Yeah, we'll stay in touch for sure. Go for a ride. <laughs> well, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, good. Okay, man. Well, thank you. Okay. Thanks, Jeff.